Welcome to episode 117, Anxiety, Life Control, Management, or the Lack Thereof. I am your host, Damon Soka. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been pondering something I'm going to refer to as life control. Basically, the amount of control we truly have and don't have over our lives. Now, whether or not we truly have control over the many variables of life is a question that energizes the waves of angst and anxiety in our body. Actually, whether or not we have control is not as important as the question as if we feel it. I can rationally walk through in my mind exactly what control I have or I don't have. However, we need to feel control over our lives and our circumstances. The less control one feels, the greater the anxiety produced by our illnesses, specifically mental illness. Now, everyone knows that there are things you can control and things you can't. And then there's a host of things that fall somewhere in between with what we might be called partial control. Okay, now after having used the word control, I personally don't like it. Simply because for me, the word has elements of what the scriptures call unrighteous dominion. When we attempt to control things, we do so with the intent of, to purposely control the outcomes by whatever means available. Now we all have certain moral leanings that temper the, out, the means available. But when anxiety rears its ugly head, even those moral leanings can be quickly overcome. So I like the word manage. When we manage things, we tend to allow for conscious decisions made by others to be part of the process, accepting that fully controlling someone or something that has agency causes them to lose control in their own sphere. And as much as we detest not having control, the same is true for others. So in, a, so in our societies we live, we look more to influence and manage rather than control. Managing something or someone or a group accepts that some outcomes are not going to be exactly what is desired, but we can have influence on those outcomes, and they can become predictable. The blessing and problem with agency of a group or a person outside ourselves is that their actions are likely to affect us in positive and at times negative ways without our true consent. But it is not necessarily the outcome that is so concerning to our conscience even when that outcome might be a negative one. The problem is more about predictability and the influence those unpredictable outcomes might cause on our own lives. As part of my own mental illness concerns, especially when I suffered with bipolar and severe anxiety, was the element of the unknown outcome or unpredictable outcome. I have discussed at length how our minds do not like missing information, unknown outcomes, surprises, and anything that doesn't fall within a reasonable, predictable range. It despises the unknowns so much that our brain subconsciously fills in missing pieces of information and actually predicts future outcomes. It does so as part of a protection system built into the body. It is the interaction between the mind, or the brain, and various parts of this system, including the adrenal system, or what is known as the fight-or-flight mode. The purpose of this system is actually fairly simple. We live in a dangerous and somewhat unpredictable world, and so this system's sole intent is to keep us alive and uninjured. In doing so, one of the brain's largest concerns is predicting what will occur in the future based on our previous experiences. It does this so that the body and mind are prepared to act on what is expected. 
Now, because the brain is hardwired to fill in missing information, it prepares for all types of scenarios based on our experience and life situations. And actually, this is quite normal. When the brain is made aware of a situation that is new or might be problematic, it activates the adrenal and other systems in the body as a preparation tool, and we get what is called nervousness, anxiousness, fidgety, jittery, jumpy, agitated, and so forth. Because this world is going to provide many new and unknown situations, it is not uncommon for the body to have these feelings. However, the normal functioning body and mind learns to moderate the responses of this system, and even learn some learn to use the nervousness, and even that agitation, to their advantage, as it can make one appear passionate about the issues or difficulties faced. So really, anxiety is quite normal in a person, but only some anxiety. However, because of our bodies and minds are just plain mortal, corruptible, and we experience external events such as trauma in unique ways, our minds are sometimes just plain broken. The mind can actually begin to run feelings of anxiety and overdrive, and the system meant as a protective system can actually cause us to become paralyzed emotionally and sometimes even physically non-functional and overly anxious about a host of, let's just call them hypothetical concerns. Our minds start to ponder all of the possibilities that could occur and all of the negative outcomes that we might experience in this overabundance of thought and feeling causes serious problems with the adrenal system and of course other systems in the body. This is basically what, basically what anxiety is. In the simplest terms, it's our protective system run amok. I know that I make it sound somewhat as though the afflicted person is choosing to allow the mind to run in overdrive. The truth is that between genetics and life experiences, especially experiences in life that are traumatic, anxiety disorder is not a choice by anyone. Now, each of us has a predisposition to anxiety through our genetics, and then based on that predisposition in life experiences, anxiety disorder will occur in about one in five persons. Now, based on your genetics, your background education, your culture, and really a host of other life stresses, that number actually increases in certain populations. If you think that anxiety is more of a, an adult thing or even a young adult thing, you would actually be wrong. Anxiety can occur at any stage in life, at any point in time, and actually even when things are going well. Even longer-term illnesses can cause anxiety. In fact, anxiety can come and go and occur in particular ways, such as OCD, panic disorder, and phobias. The key to understanding whether or not you have a general disorder or even one of the more serious variants of it is how it affects your life. Normally, anxiety naturally causes us to feel anxious in our lives. It's a very normal, <clears throat> it is very normal to get very nervous about public speaking or any public displays, particular events where you have negative experiences in animals or objects. What is very important to understand is just how it is affecting your personal life. You see, most people have some smaller anxiety issues that don't necessarily rise to the level of a disorder that they work around in their lives, but it really doesn't affect the overall functioning of their daily life. When we speak of anxiety disorders, we're talking about anxiety that is affecting significant portions of one's life, or that affects important activities, such as being able to work, required social situations, leaving one's home, creating relationships, and so forth. So in the end, when we talk about anxiety disorder, it's more on a spectrum of severity 
rather than some kind of a hard line that you might cross. If you can work through and around your symptoms without too much concern, effort, or difficulty, then generally you're not considered within the realms of the disorder. But remember that anxiety is a very individual illness, and what one might be able to handle, another may not. So our spectrum of anxiety is not only a large kind of bell curve, but that curve is really different for everyone. Now that I've said a lot of words, discussed kind of this disorder in general, let's make it more applicable to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Church, as it is currently organized, provides a host of concerns for individuals with social anxiety disorders, general disorders, panic disorders, and really any type of serious anxiety disorder. If you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, you will be expected to give talks, pray, or speak in public. You will be expected to teach lessons. You will be expected to be social and participate in activities. You will also be required to develop relationships with other individuals and to look after their welfare. What you find within the church is that almost everything we do causes issues for those who deal with serious anxieties. So the church, as it is set up, causes really great problems for those who suffer with anxiety. Now, I am not saying that the church is organized incorrectly or that it isn't the Lord's church because of what it requires. But what I am saying is even that, even though most individuals deal with anxiety on some level, when it comes to church activity, most do not understand or see why living the gospel, at least on a social participation level, is so difficult for 20% of the population of its members. We often speak of inactivity, not fulfilling assignments or callings, being consistently sick when asked to teach or speak, not completing ministering assignments, and failures of these individuals as it concerns what we view as active participating members. The truth of the matter is, is that because they face a difficult illness, even when they do not fulfill assignments, ministering or otherwise, do not attend more than sacrament or other meetings, do not attend meetings at all, do not attend social meetings, are unable to speak in sacrament or teach a lesson, they are still very much considered active members of the Lord's Church from his perspective. The Lord understands the illness, and what is considered active for them is not the same for those who do not have the illness. The Lord mercifully and compassionately allows for the gospel to adjust to mental illness and serious anxiety. I personally have been there many times, and yes, many times I have felt guilty about what I could and could not do. I still struggle at times with people relationships and things like ministering, speaking, and teaching. Now, I've learned to cope with my illness, as it is certainly not as severe as when it was combined with my bipolar disorder, but the remnants remain, and I am resistant to social concerns, such as talking to someone new at church, developing personal relationships, and so many other social things. I can now better work through it, but I still feel guilty when I don't do things that what are expected. While I don't have, have the anxiety I used to, Everything I learned from those moments of severe anxiety have actually sunk pretty deep into my subconscious. And retraining, let's just say, has been difficult. Most individuals wouldn't know this about me, as I hide it very well. Another one of those masking abilities. But the truth is, anxiety in some form is likely to be part of my life for many years yet to come. Now I've learned to cope with my anxiety, and I will explain a little bit of those coping methods with the intent that they might be helpful to others, but there are two things I want to talk about before we get to my personal coping mechanisms. 
The first is the guilt of anxiety. And the second is what normal individuals do when they don't have anxiety. And I will actually explain why that is important. Anxiety can and does create guilt from which it is often difficult to escape. This is no truer than we talk about church activity. Because it is the nature of the church to be social and to have everyone participate in the teaching and learning efforts and to measure activity by numbers who are participating, it can be a mountain of guilt for those who suffer with serious anxiety. Should someone feel guilty about not being able to participate because of anxiety? The answer is no, of course not. Yes, the Lord expects us to do what we can to work with our illness, but to condemn someone because they cannot fully participate due to an illness over which management is difficult and that the Lord has allowed to pass upon them would simply be wrong. The Lord would not give the illness in its more severe forms and then say, you have to work through it and participate like a normally functioning member and then feel guilty if you don't. I would venture to say that most of my guilt does not come from the Lord. In fact, according to the illness that I have, none of it does. It is probably more for me a personal feeling, likely brought about by the social peer pressures induced by church membership, and that somehow I feel that to be active I must participate exactly as others do. The truth is, is that the gospel is tailored to the individual and to their weaknesses. The Lord requires us to keep the commandments. That is true. But our activity and our social concerns can be tailored to what the illness will allow. Yes, attending church and going to activities are part of being a member, but it is also important to remember that the Lord is the judge and not his people, and he fully understands the illness. So if you are working to do what you can, there should be no guilt. And I'm actually going to repeat that. If you are working to do what you can with your illness, there should be no guilt or condemnation, and you stand acceptable before the Lord. Now, the second thing I wanted to talk about is the major difference between those of us who experience severe anxiety and those who do not. Psychologically, the 80 percenters, or 80% of people who don't experience severe anxiety, possess what's called a stopgap in their minds, meaning that they are able to ignore the more negative possibilities that paralyze the person with severe anxiety and are able to view what could occur based on probability. Now, I admit that the 80 percenters probably don't run the exact numbers in their mind, but they possess the ability to view certain possibilities as negligible. For instance, I knew a young man who was terribly afraid of going to public school because of the possibility of a school shooting. For the 80 percenters, the possibility of being shot in school is so remote that the mind simply ignores it. But for the, but for the person with severe anxiety, that stopgap, for some reason, does not exist. And so the even remote possibility causes them to have serious reservations about attending school and could cause all kinds of symptoms, which at times can be quite severe. Now, with good treatment plans, some of that stopgap can actually be recovered in the mind. But generally, it will always be an issue for a person who suffers with anxiety. Science doesn't really know what causes one person to have a good stopgap and what causes another to have little to no stopgaps in their thinking. The answer is often genetics and environmental concerns, but that's pretty generic. And so anxiety can be difficult to treat and difficult to understand for anyone who has never felt its fight-or-flight pull. It can be very problematic in church situations where leaders have little to no compassion for it or are dismissive to it. Now, while it can be troubling for adults, it can be crippling to the youth when leadership is insufficiently compassionate and understanding about the illness. 
we have tendencies within the church ranks to view nervousness, anxiousness, and those types of emotional responses as something we need to work on or help our youth and young adults to overcome. And for the 80 percenters, that is true. But for the remaining 20%, pushing them beyond the limits of the illness can be more than detrimental. It can cause inactivity for life, suicidal thoughts, and serious resistive behaviors to the gospel. Many youths are still learning about expectations and requirements of living the gospel. For those like me who dealt with serious anxiety, the leader who does not concern themselves with what is happening emotionally, mentally, and spiritually to the young man or woman who exhibits symptoms of this illness is seriously detrimental to their spiritual, emotional, and mental development. And yes, I said it. And yes, I know that leadership is not taught to look for symptoms of the illness or to work with you dealing with mental illness, especially anxiety. But I also under, And I also understand that we have a lay leadership. But I think that in this case, we simply must do better. Far too many individuals have simply left the church because their emotional anxiety and mental illness have been pushed beyond the limits of the illness. They are not at fault, and with just a little compassion and some basic understanding and education, many of these individuals would, could participate according to their illness. The same is true for missionary service. So many of our youth are afflicted in some ways with anxiety disorders and other mental illnesses. The church has come a long way over the last few years to allow for different types of missionary service to accommodate those who suffer. And I know that the brethren do understand that we need to help those who suffer, and they fully understand the need for compassion. But those pioneer traditions can be difficult to extricate from the mainstream populist soul, such as we desire our children to serve proselyting missions and that service missions are somehow second-tier missions. We, need, we do need more educated and experienced individuals to step forward and help, to compassionately view those who suffer and provide them opportunities that best suit their abilities. We need to view and tailor the ministering program to allow for anxiety and all its difficulties, even various types of church, church service. We need to allow for individuals to explain their concerns and say no when they need to, without the guilt of turning down a calling or an assignment. Now, I don't believe personally that the brethren desire to inflict more guilt upon those who struggle so deeply with these illnesses, and that they do desire to provide the best atmosphere possible for them to thrive in the gospel. They desire them to participate at the level they can and to work with their illness and leadership of the word of the stake. But sometimes I think that the translation of this concern falls upon some deaf traditional laden ears when you get to the stake and ward level. I think that sometimes mental illness is beyond frightening to those who have control of their emotional states, and it is very difficult for, the, for them to comprehend it. So this often translates into misunderstandings, misguidance, to the point that the individual slowly or even rather abruptly leaves the ward family. And yet so many things could be done that would allow for participation with just little adjustments to the normal course of church life. Sensitivity to individuals who appear to be overly anxious, socially awkward, or who have diagnosed mental illness concerns would allow for so much more depth and breadth to our ward families. Understanding of young adults who have serious mental concerns, or even moderate ones, could provide so much greater depth to the young adult programs. But I do understand that when you don't have the illness yourself, or even have a close relationship with someone who has dealt with it, that it can be difficult to comprehend. What I'm saying is that as a lay leadership, we should simply be more aware of the mental concerns, and rather than talk about inactive inactivity, 
discuss what is truly happening in the lives of our individuals and how we can best help them participate at the level of activity that their illness allows. Now, to conclude, let's talk a little bit about coping mechanisms, specific some of my coping mechanisms. Now, when I talk about these methods, it's important to understand that coping mechanisms rarely develop with purpose, meaning most co coping mechanisms develop out of a grassroots without us really recognizing that we have developed them. For instance, because of my serious anxiety problems, I developed a very detailed method of planning and scheduling. And at times, my planning and scheduling was very rigid. There was purpose in the coping mechanism, but I developed it without understanding that my anxiety disorder was the cause. It is interesting to note just how many people with serious anxiety develop highly detailed methods of planning and scheduling. Although it does make sense in that planning and scheduling eliminates some of the unknowns, and it is the unknowns that cause the serious symptoms to occur. Now, as part of my illness and beyond the detailed planning and scheduling, I also develop mechanisms around relationships and to deal with the unknowns that come with any type of human relationship. I tend to be guarded, listen more than I talk, introspective, and I tend not to develop a relationship where my anxiety might be increased meaning that I tend to choose the people with whom I develop any type of relationship. My re relationships, with the exception of my close family and wife, tend to be at arm's length. And I also tend to avoid public or social situations where I might be alone with individuals I do not know. Now, I've been able to work, I've been able to mask and cope with teaching, public speaking, and other similar situations to the point that my anxiety really isn't noticeable but it has taken decades of work and small steps and thousands of repetitions. What is important about coping mechanisms, masking and learning to deal with anxiety is that small steps are important. We tend to look at large goals and big ideas like others accomplish when we need to be focused on small wins and small step efforts. If going to church is difficult, then a small win is to do so once and then build upon it. If our effort falls short, we leave halfway through, or whatever that might be, then look at what you did accomplish, rather than the failure. And yes, I know how hard that is. And I know how hard it is to avoid the guilt. I know how difficult it is to not be fully in control of your emotional life due to mental illness, and just how frustrating it can be to attempt small steps and fail time and time again. What I do know is that the Savior is very aware of your situation. And if you can't go to church, fulfill your calling, serve a proselyting mission or any type of mission, or even contact your ministering people, then he understands. And there should really be no guilt involved. I know even how hard it is to avoid that guilt, but I know that the Lord does not desire you to feel guilty, but to feel that you are doing your best. And I think that is my message truly today. You do not need to feel guilty when you are doing what you can within the gospel. Even if the lay leadership, the Lord family, or even your own family doesn't understand it. Even if your efforts are small to the eyes of others, when you accomplish those efforts with the illness, then the Lord sanctifies it. Now may the Lord bless you to see your efforts as valuable and as important to Him. Until next week, do your part so that the Lord can do His.